0: Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. We'll be continuing our exposition through this book, and we come now to the the second half of this book, finally. Some of you maybe were wondering if we would ever get here, as we seem to have slowed down as we were looking at this. The title of the message is The Keys to Our Unity. And this is very, very important. And I hope that you will pay attention closely and make sure that you are endeavoring to keep the peace among the brethren. And we'd like to say that actually the first half of the book of Ephesians has been described as our wealth in Christ, and now when we get to chapter 4, our walk in Christ. Another way to think of it is uh, the first three chapters have been rich in theology and doctrine, laying out what is What has been done for us in Christ, and now we come to duty. Our practical response in light of this great wealth that we have received, in light of all that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has done for us. What is our practical response? And this is very, very important for us to consider. Paul will begin to focus on our horizontal relationships. He's touched on it in the previous chapters, hasn't he? But he's going to really come down where the rubber meets the road and address our horizontal relationships and how important that is. To put it another way, he's going to address our attitudes and our practice with one another. Sometimes that can uh, probe a little bit. If you're at odds with a brother or sister and to think what God calls us to, the high calling that he calls us to. Now I hope there's no one here that's thinking, well, you know what, all my horizontal relationships are perfect I don't even need to hear this. I hope you're not sitting here saying that today. Think about it. That estranged cousin, that coworker who won't talk to you, um, other members of your family, distant family, and maybe for some of you, even your spouse. There is conflict. We're constantly dealing with conflict. We want to be peacemakers to bring about peace in the relationships that the Lord has given us. And so, I would submit to you that we all need to learn how more effectually uh, to glorify God in our earthly relationships. Now, by way of review, in chapters 1-3, through three, Paul began with that huge doxology by which he, he spoke about how we've been chosen be- from before the foundation of the world. We've been predestined unto adoption of sons. God the Son came and redeemed us with His blood and purchased our salvation, ransomed us from slavery. God, the Holy Spirit, has sealed us in His Spirit so that we are sealed unto the day of redemption. In chapter 2, He said, We were dead in sin. We're like a corpse. We're we're in a coffin. There's no hope for us. There's no air. There's no pulse. No hope of resuscitation. But God made us alive and seated us at the right hand of, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in chapter 2. In chapter 3, He moves on to that glorious prayer of which we looked at the last few weeks. It's filled with deep theology. The idea that we would be strengthened in the inner man, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we would know something of the love of Christ, and that we would be filled to the fullness of overflowing. And then the doxology, just in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where it talks about essentially that God is able to do far more above exceedingly beyond all we could ask or think. Beyond our wildest imagination, He is able. He is the omnipotent God that is more than able to do all things. He is the the God who is in control of the tiny things in our lives, intimately acquainted with us and therefore worthy of all praise and adoration. So with that two-minute summary of the first three uh, th- chapters. You can download the sermons if you want to focus on any of those uh, previous verses. They're all on the internet. But now, let's come to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And I'd ask you to follow along as we read the text together. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His help for this time. Father, we ask that You would send the Spirit, that You would give us eyes of understanding. Lord, that You would enlighten our hearts by faith. Lord, that we would glean all that You have for us from this passage of Scripture, that no one here would walk away as a forgetful hearer, but that we would be effectual doers. And Lord, that we would be motivated by the right thing and Namely, the first three chapters of this book, the gospel of free and sovereign grace that has been set forth, that we wouldn't do this out of mere duty to try to earn brownie points with you, but Lord, that we would do it because of all that Christ has done for us. So help us to be obedient in these things, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the obvious underlying theme of this section is unity, and that goes down to verse 17. In my NAS version, it actually has a little you know, subtitle, Unity of the Spirit. That's a good way to describe this passage of Scripture um, here. So that's the obvious underlying theme. Now, it's not merely an external unity, that, okay, we'll just be on our best behavior, and, hey, I won't retaliate to him and her who, who get on my nerves and all of that, but it's internal. He's getting down to what really motivates us and what's really on the inside Something that's not naturally organic, and so we need to work at this. And by the way, unity does not mean uniformity. What do I mean by that? We all don't, all of a sudden, when we come to Christ, dress the exact same way with a polka dot tie or a striped tie or no tie or whatever. We all don't have the same gift. We all can't play piano as beautiful as Rochelle. Uh, We all don't have the same gift of encouragement or admonishment or of service or of teaching or whatever. God has given a diversity of gifts. That's next week. That's the preview for next week. If you drop down further in chapter 4, he's given some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, all for the equipping of the saints. And so it does not mean uniformity. Most people are wired in such a way that they want to belong to something, Deepu and I and Rob and I and some others have been talking about the idea of community and how people are wired in such a way they want to belong to something in the community or be a part of a community or a club of some sort. That's the way God has wired us. I read once um, a few weeks back, I think, of a man who was so lonely and was not a part of anything that he would get his hair cut once a week just to have communication and the touch of another human being we are wired in such a way that we need each other and that we want to belong to each other and even in the secular world if you join a club you're expected to adopt its principles and promote its principles if you try out for the chargers if you say i'm really a diehard bengal fan they're probably you know, going to look at you and say well you know we don't really want a, a fan of another team on our team we want you to be behind us when you join a club you promote its goals and so forth when you become a citizen of the United States of America. You, you, you repeat the Constitution, I believe, or something along those lines in the ceremony, but you are now a citizen of the United States and you want to promote this country, not fight against it. And so too, when we come to Christ. God did not design us to be in such a way that when we come to Christ, that all of a sudden we can move to the mountains and it's just me and God and we just live happily ever after. God has designed us and gifted us that we would be a part of a local church. That we would use our gifts in that way. That we would have the community of believers for we help and we prod and we admonish and we encourage one another to growth. And so the cause for us is the cause of Christ and the cause of His Gospel, which is centered around the church. I'd like to also qualify as we talk about unity. It, It does not mean unity at any cost. Um, There's been various efforts and churches and groups who have made the fatal flaw of thinking these uh, ecumenical efforts are good, such as Evangelical and Catholics Together, 1994. Let's just just let down, you know, drop down all the differences so that we can come together and unite. No. Or the World Council of Churches, the same thing. No, it doesn't mean unity at any cost. That is not what Paul is saying. So today we're going to consider this under three simple heads. The urgent call for unity. Next, the personal characteristics of that unity. And lastly, the doctrinal basis of this unity. So first of all, Paul in verse 1, the urgent call to this unity. He begins to apply these doctrinal truths that have been there, that he's set forth in the first half of the letter. And notice it begins with the therefore. What is the therefore? Therefore, you have to look before that. It's the previous three chapters. It's as though he's saying, since you Gentiles, in Asia Minor, have been blessed with all spiritual blessings since you were once dead in sin and now alive with Christ and now seated with Him, no, and no longer aliens, but now fellow citizens, now, in light of all of that, walk worthy of your calling. And Paul here, he reminds him again, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Now you remember chapter 3, verse 1, he reminded them as well. Why does he remind them of this? Why does he say that here? It's often at the beginning of epistles, right? But he's, he's reminding them here. and it literally means one captive or bound in chains, chains. And I think Paul's alluding to two things. First, on the Damascus road, when the Lord revealed himself to him with the bright light and he fell flat on his face, at that time of calling, when he eventually would come to faith in Christ, that from now on, he was enslaved to Christ, as it were. He had become a slave of righteousness. But secondly, he actually was in prison. And so as he begins the practical section of this letter, and he's exhorting Christians, as I'm exhorting you today, to walk worthy of your calling if you're in Christ, that there can be a cost for doing that. The Apostle Paul paid dearly, did he not? You can read in Second Corinthians when he lists all the things that he's been through, being beaten with rods, being thrown out to sea, etc., in prison. All of those things, there is a cost to walking in obedience to our Lord's calling. And I hope you're not surprised by that. This morning I read of a Christian family in Pakistan a Christian lawyer and his wife and five children that are brutally killed by Islamic extremists. Okay, this happens all the time. Jesus said, "In this world, you will have tribulation." So I hope you don't have the candy cane version of Christianity that I come to Christ and everything is peachy king fine. No, there will be difficulty in this life, but there's no greater joy than serving the Lord where He has you, bringing the gospel. The people who need to hear it. Well, he says here in verse one, he implores them to walk worthy, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling of which you have been called. This word implore can be, I think some of your translations have urge. Uh, it means to appeal to, to exhort, to literally come alongside. It's the word for call and the word for alongside. Para kaleho. And so, it's, it, what's, what's pictured here is the Apostle Paul. And it's spiritually saying, Let me put my arm around you and give you some encouragement and admonishment of how you should walk now in this world in light of all of what Christ has done. It reminds me of when my boys first got their first set of rollerblades. They're very young on our back patio trying to, to roll around. And, you know, we just didn't let them bang their head and fall, fall, you know. Daddy's right alongside, and he's helping him wide. Let go for a little bit, catch him, and that kind of thing. And that's the idea, to come alongside. That's the richness of this word. And the Greeks, as they uh, could put the sentence structure together in such a way, not like the English at all, they could throw the verb at the very beginning. The Greeks would do this for emphasis. And this is the first word in the Greek text. And so he wants to draw emphasis to that. So he's urging them, he's imploring them to walk worthy. To walk worthy. What does it mean to walk? Well, this, the verb that's here literally means to walk, but essentially what it means is how you conduct your life. And so, conduct your lives in a manner worthy. This is a theme we're going to see throughout the next few chapters. You'll notice as we go through, in 4.17 he mentions walk. In five two, he says walk in love. And 5.14, to walk carefully. And so this is a theme that will be repeated in the coming weeks. And to walk worthy. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk worthy? It means the idea that now you are royalty. You are a son of the King. You are a child of the King. And so walk in such a way that you display that. That your life matches the high position of being a child of God, of being in Christ. Put it another way, that your daily practical life matches that high calling and standard. That's what it means. Walk worthy. Paul would tell the church in Philippi very similar thing with the idea of unity tied to it in Philippians 27. He says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm, notice, in one spirit and in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, again, to conduct ourselves worthy, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, what does he mean here when he says worthy of the calling with which you have been called? By the way, they have been called as passive. There, this is this is something that we don't call ourselves. We don't lift a hand necessarily. We are called, irresistibly drawn by the Holy Spirit when we come to Christ. But this calling is the idea of a divine calling. It's an urgent invitation that comes to us to join together, implying a new relationship with another. And so, it refers to the divine call by which Christians are introduced to all the privileges. Of the gospel. All the privileges of being a co heir with Christ. Paul says similarly in 2 Timothy 1 9, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. We need to be reminded of that because our nature is such that we want to try to be good performance people, right? But it's not according to our works. He called us with a holy calling, according to his own purpose. And Jesus reminds the disciples as well, you did not choose me, I chose you. Don't blow your head up. Don't let your head get too big. You didn't choose me, I chose you. So that's the urgent call. Now let's look at verses 2 and 3, the personal characteristics of our unity. And in verse 2, he says first, with all humility and gentleness. We'll look at that prepositional phrase first. And I'll ask you, are you known for being humble, and gentle. Are you known for that? Would somebody describe you as that? Humility means to be lowly, denying, thinking a little of oneself. A biblical humi- humility means esteeming others as more important than yourself. It's the opposite of the popular self-esteem teaching today in the public schools, isn't it? you just got to think so much about yourself and all of that. no. We are to think low of ourselves and to think much of others. And I mean that in the biblical sense. I don't have time to qualify that. In Philippians 2.3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, you have to remember the context of this letter, right? The context of this letter is in the first century to Asia Minor, Ephesus and the surrounding churches in Asia and so forth there, this trait was completely looked down upon in the first century. In fact, the Greeks and the Romans did not even have a word for humility. It was a Christian term that was put together actually around the time of Christ. And it's an amazing thing. It was looked at as repulsive. Humility? I mean, pride was the thing that the Romans excelled in. But this is not anything new with the first century. The Old Testament is covered with verses along these lines, right? Think of Isaiah 57, for example. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place. It's an amazing thing. You see The transcendence of God. He dwells in a high and holy place. And you realize your own sin, that's so far away. But the verse goes on. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to what? Revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrites. Christ say, humble yourselves that I may exalt you in due time. The example of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2 Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. And by the way, not any death, death on a cross. John MacArthur (laughs) brings out uh, an interesting Vignette here, he says, humility is ambiguous, or essentially, he didn't say that, but it's if you focus too much on it, right, it can turn into pride, the very opposite. And he says this humility is a virtue to be highly sought, but never to be claimed, because once it is claimed, it is forfeited. So when someone says, Well, I'm I'm pretty humble. You've you've crossed the line. You're proud. And so it's to be highly sought after, but you never claim that you have arrived. And again, the quote in the New Testament, God is opposed to the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. So it is no secret that our culture today in the 21st century, especially here in Southern California, is really not that different from the first century in Asia Minor, isn't it? Is humility extolled as a trait to, to boast in? Absolutely not. It is pride. It's taking, taking everything by in your own strength and exalting pride. And when it comes to the church, we need to understand that pride is the enemy of the church and pride is really the enemy of God. What was Satan's sin that cast him out of heaven? Pride. What is at the root of every single sin that is committed? Pride. Pride promotes disunity in the church. And it is a grievous thing when when it comes to the church and we begin to boast in our programs and boast in our building and we boast in all of this stuff. It, 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 It contradicts the Gospel that we seek to promote. And so it's a grievous thing when pride comes to the church. That's why we have an emphasis here on the grace of God. That except for the grace of God, there go I. And here I am, a sinner saved by grace. Here and here we are as a church gathered, a group of sinners. We've got nothing to boast in and, our, in and of ourselves. He's united us together and we give Him all the glory for anything that He does through us. Now think of ways that you can be tempted to be proud. Ways that Americans, and you know Christians fall into this too. We can be tempted to, to be proud over our citizenship, citizen of the United States of America, can be overly proud in the military, Uh, your social status. I used to be lower class, I'm upper class now, and I'm glad I'm not like them, these types of things. Our possessions, our abilities, college degrees, our own looks, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, in front of the mirror, wow, oh man, wow, ooh, everybody, you know, come on, no! Break the mirror. If that's your besetting sin. How about biblical knowledge? How about being good at philosophy? How about this kind of stuff, you know? How about our head knowledge we can begin to, to boast in? How about well the fact that, well, I used to be an Arminian, but now my eyes are open to the doctrines of God's free and sovereign grace. I got it all figured out. Oh, I know so much more than all of these other people. And no, no. Who opened your eyes? Holy Spirit, the Lord did. That's why you know that. So may we be careful not to fall into pride. But he goes on, and really the fruit of humility leads into this next one. And that's why Paul puts it together with that preposition uh, back in Ephesians. He says, with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness is the quality of not being over impressed with yourself. Isn't that amazing? Just to think about that. Or of one's self-importance. That it communicates meekness. And at the root of its meaning, it means to be courteous and to consider others. To be meek is not to be weak. To be weak is not to be a wimp. That's not the meaning of the word. What it means is waiving your rights rather than demanding your rights. As it has been said, meekness is Power under control. Think of a lion that spends six months with a trainer taken out of the Sahara Desert, taken out of Tanzania, and it's wild and vicious when when the trainer first gets him, but after six months, completely tame. Is, Is he weaker? Has he lost weight? No, he's still as strong. It's power under control. And if that trainer said, Get the threat, it probably would obey. And so you would see that power. Just think of the Lord Jesus Christ come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what does he go on to say? For I am gentle and humble at heart. Would you dare say that the Lord Jesus Christ was weak? Absolutely not. Who went into the temple and overturned the tables and drove them out of the temple? He had great zeal. For his father's glory and for his father's house, he had great zeal to get to those who needed to hear the gospel and to heal the poor. Great zeal. And we see that even in him forgiving our sins. What about Moses? It says in Numbers 12, this is amazing, that Moses was very humble, not just humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now that's amazing okay so here's Moses he's humble now you might say well that's said of him because I mean after all he was 80 when he started when he went to stand before Pharaoh but no he zealously goes before Pharaoh what does he say let my people go in the name of the Lord again and again he went with power but he was very humble and meek likewise among his own peers As well, right? When he comes down after meeting with God and he sees him worshiping a golden calf and he comes down and he rebukes them, and you see that power and that zeal for God's glory being revealed. But yet it says he's a humble man. How about for you? We want to exert our rights sometimes, don't we? Maybe it happened to you today on the way to church on the freeway. Somebody cut you off. Here you are. Humming a hymn. Praying to the Lord. And who is this that cuts me off? What do you... You know, you want to blow the horn or whatever, you know? You want to exert your rights? Because How dare you? In... No. Meekness. So that's fine. Let them go, you know? Now, I'm not, again, not advocating being a wimp about this, but how about when somebody lets you down? You know, if somebody doesn't show up for something or whatever, we can be tempted to, to say, how dare them violate my rights? That falls on me or whatever. No we can just not exhort, ex- push for our rights. We need to waive our rights. Brethren, these two graces are graces that do not come naturally. If they come naturally for you, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> but uh, these are graces that need to be cultivated. And when you know what cultivation involves? plowing up the soil loosening the soil getting the right seed planting at the right time having the right water keeping the weeds out and all of that that's communicate. in other words it's work it's not going to come naturally you can't buy humility pill or an, a, a gentleness pill on amazon it's not going to work We need to cultivate these things through godly christian living as Brother Rob read in our scripture reading in Colossians, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness with patience. It's something that we put on. Some of you have heard of Charles Simeon in England, um, Cambridge area in 1808. He fell sick for eight months and was exiled to an island. And uh, somebody else took over the preaching for him. And this man that stepped up to fill the pulpit that preached five times a day, word was getting back to him He's preaching as good or better than you, Mr. Simeon. Now, he could say, well, jealous or whatever, you know, and all of that. But no, what he says is, I, don't want, I want to get the quote right. Now I know why I have been set aside, and I bless God for it. That the Lord could raise up somebody else. That can bring glory to his name. That it's not all about him. Well, let's look at the second half of verse 2. The second prepositional phrase. You see the with there. With patience... Showing tolerance for one another in love. It's linked together with the first phrase, or thought of it maybe as parallel phrases, but what does patience mean? Steadfastness, endurance. Here it means the idea of being able to bear up under provocation. You see the similarities there. Bearing up under provocation. And then he says in the NAS, uh, unfortunate Showing tolerance, it's a better translated bearing. Uh, the, even the King James and all the other translations have bearing with one another in love. Showing tolerance is a, is a valid translation. I like the idea of bearing, better. But what does this bear, word for bearing mean? It just means to hold up, to put up with. And this participle here is actually it has the force of an imperative. So we're essentially by the structure commanded to Bear up, or showing tolerance for one another in love so that unity might be preserved. The word is used by Jesus when He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I put up with you, right? That's the idea, is to put up with one another in the local church. We are called to do this. Again, in Colossians 3, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Verse to be memorized. If you're in a marriage, if you are in any relationship with any other humans, to bear with one another. You know what the underlying. You know there's there's an underlying um, agenda that Paul has here. He is assuming something. He is assuming that we will have difficulty with those around us. He wouldn't be using these strong words, okay? and all of this, he's assuming we will have difficulty with those around us and we should expect it. Just as you have some conflict in your personal family, whether it's husband and wife or uh, parent to child or child to parent and there's various conflicts and difficulties and, and you have to be humble and you have to display love and bear with one another, so too in the family of God in the local church. And we need to bear with one another forgiving each other. A close-knit community such as ours, we are going to see each other's flaws. And we can exact our rights, we can point the finger all the time, all day long, but that's not unto peace. Now, I'm not saying overlook gross sin. I hope you understand that. I'm not advocating that at all. It's the petty annoyances that we can overlook and love that we're called to do. May the Lord help us with that. We would do well to consider... 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, where it says, and think of this in the context of the church, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant and does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own and is not provoked and does not take into account a wrong suffered. Well, Moving on to verse 3, he says, Being diligent. Wow. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, uh, this is the other participle that has a force of an imperative here. Um, what it means is to make haste. okay there's no room for idleness. there's no room for just sitting aside. If you are a member in the church and if you are a Christian, you are to make haste to preserve the unity of the spirit. And the bond of peace. In other words, you have a role, and laziness is not an option. Be eager, be diligent to preserve unity, that state of oneness and harmony that we share together, and we're to make haste to do that. And he says, In the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. What is a bond? Think of superglue. A bond is something that holds us together. It's something that holds us together. So to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now Paul has talked much about peace already, hasn't he? In chapter 2, I'll just read chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, if you want to look at that. Speaking of Christ, that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he says, but He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Now what is he talking about there? If you were here for the Expositions, obviously you know. It's Jew and Gentile being reconciled together and being reconciled in peace. Something that they would never think of apart from the Gospel of Christ because they were arch enemies. And Jesus is our peace. And because of His work, we can have peace with one another. Paul exhorts in 2 Corinthians, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. You see, we need each other. We need each other in the context of the local church. We need each other for Christian growth, to grow in our sanctification, to come into Christ-like conformity. And if you're not a part of a local church, you're not benefiting from the mutual unity and encouragement that the Lord desires. You see what he's talking about here is relational unity one with another that we can share and focus on those things that are the common bond. Namely, that we've been reconciled to God by the Gospel of Christ. We need to be careful not to argue over the fine points of the law rather while ignoring the greater (laughs) issues of the law. We need to be careful not to go down rabbit trails. Positively, this verse, what is it telling us? To be peacemakers. To be peacemakers. We've been studying that in our home fellowship group, almost finished with that. But that's the idea, is to be a peacemaker, to be a promoter of peace. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Paul said in Romans 12, and verse 18. If you think about it, most of the irritations of your life, and you can... Track it for the next week or look back over the the previous week. But the problem is you can forget. So if you're thinking going forward, that might be good. Think of the irritations to where you're tempted to become angry, when you're tempted to exert your rights, and jot those down or take a mental note and think about that. Most often our irritations largely are related to other people. They typically just don't come when you're walking through the forest or through the garden yourself, you know. Maybe they do, but this typically are interactions with other people, and think about it. You're calling the nurse on the phone to get the results from your child's blood test that was due two days ago, and you're going through the hold and getting cut off and all of that. The person at the Social Security Administration, that seems like they're not qualified for the job. The receptionist at the DMV, the auto mechanic, your superior at work, a fellow student, all of these people that can become irritants and even... Narrow it down to your own family. you know Whether it's a parent or a roommate or a husband or a wife or a child and there's these irritants. And why is it? It's because we're not displaying humility and gentleness. We're not bearing with one another in love and we become irritated and we can sin. Or even in the church family, as I've alluded to before, can be a temptation. We need to remember two things. We need to remember to bear in love, but also... As you are tempted to irritation, you need to remember that your sin before God that was forgiven is a million times worse than the one sin that has offended you by this person that's irritating you. And you must keep that in your mind's eye. You who have been forgiven so much is going to go around exacting your rights. What folly and how contradictory that is to the gospel of Christ. Let me illustrate it with this and this analogy it's amazing how God made geese geese migrate and they fly long distances don't they back and forth think of the canadian goose and the amount of miles that they travel when they travel during migration how do they fly it's in a v pattern typically maybe a wavy v pattern right and they're flying in this pattern they honk at each other as they go some kind of communication But they fly at 40 to 50 miles an hour, which is amazing to me. And the formation is such that the birds that flap are actually bringing an updraft to the one behind it. It's much like when you pass a semi on the freeway, you feel your car shake. If you have a small car, if you have a big SUV, you may not feel it. But but it creates an updraft so that they can actually travel 70% further together in that pattern versus if they were flying alone. I think Christians are like that in a way. We have one common purpose, one central unity around the Lord Jesus Christ and His glorious Gospel. And we're propelled by the thrust of others and the admonitions and the encouragements of others that press us on. You talk to somebody that's reading, and or, you know, they're reading in their Bible and what they're learning from Habakkuk. And they're sharing all of the insights that they're learning. And what does that do? You come away from that I can't even remember what I read this morning. I need to maybe pay attention more and dig deeper into God's Word. There's various things like that. There's one of a million different scenarios that that move us on to encourage us to press on in Christian growth. We can get a lot further together than we ever could alone. Also, these geese honk at each other. They're communicating somehow or another. The front one, when he becomes tired, will actually fade back to the back and the next one will take the lead so that he can be now pulled by that updraft. It's just amazing. And so, the, the, the rear ones are sounding off to the front to stay the course, maintain your speed. And we too progress in our Christian growth more easily when there's somebody encouraging us, discipling us, caring for us, loving us in practical ways. We need to pray that the Lord would convict there's so many that say they're Christians, but they don't want to be a part of a church. Hey, it's me and God and I'm doing just fine. That's sad. They're depriving themselves of actually cr- of growing and coming to know the Lord more. It's also noteworthy that the Lord Jesus Christ exemplified these qualities more than anyone else ever. Who was humble? Who was the, who's the epitome of humility? It's the Lord Jesus Christ in his gentle touch even to a leper of which nobody else would touch and he comes and he heals bearing with one another here it is the sinless son of god come to earth to dwell among sinful men talk about feeling like your rights have been violated think of what christ endured it should make us wither in conviction and grieving over our sin Well, we've seen the urgent call to unity, the characteristics. Now, finally, briefly, the doctrinal basis of our unity. And this is very important. Paul lists seven things in verses four to seven, or four to six, rather, if you were to break them up. There's seven things. They're built around the Trinity, that's obvious. The Spirit in verse four, the Son in verse five, and God the Father in verse six. And so it's clear, but the overall thrust of this, the context is unity. And so doctrinal, being doctrinally sound and being careful of error is very important to maintaining our unity. You see, those who have the ecumenical efforts, even the ELCA and recently exchanging pulpits with United Methodists and it's okay to have homosexual ministers and all that, you know, trying to maintain unity like that with other denominations, you're ripping out pages of Scripture and you're doing it for the sake of saying that we have relations or Evangelicals and Catholics together? What could be further from being unified with transubstantiation and other heresies of depending on works for salvation? I'm not saying there can't be truly converted people in the Catholic Church who don't understand what the Church teaches, but if you understand what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, you cannot be a Christian because it undermines the finished work of Jesus Christ. So what Paul's emphasis here is is you must have a doctrinal basis for your unity. It's not just unity for unity's sake. And so what does he say here? First, <clears throat> he says in verse 4, there is one body, there is one body of believers, the church that is purchased with the blood of Christ. He's made this clear from chapter 2 and verse 13, but now in Christ, you were, who were formerly afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He talks about how we are no longer strangers and aliens, but now we are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. goes on to talk about we're individual building blocks in the spiritual temple of God. There is one body. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free. There's one body of Christ. And so in light of those Scriptures, let me ask you, brother or sister, are you indifferent when there is conflict and division in the church. You just think, oh, they're at it again or whatever, and I'm thankful, and you're to be commended, that I don't, I'm not aware of any big divisions or conflict or disunity, and I'm thankful. But Paul is cautioning us, and we've all heard of situations that are dreadful and terrible, and so we need to be warned. But we can't be indifferent when that's happening. You, go to, you think about how far Jesus Christ went to redeem His people so that we would become one body of believers. It is so contrary to what Christ came to accomplish. Even in His high priestly prayer, He says that they all may be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, so that they also may be in Us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. He goes on and says, one Holy Spirit, there's one true Holy Spirit that indwells every single child of God. If you're a child of God here today, the Holy Spirit dwells on the inside. There's one Spirit that comforts and consoles and and furthermore illuminates God's Word for us so that we can have understanding. There is one Spirit through His ministry that always points to the grandeur and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one Spirit who convicts us of sin. There's a Spirit That can be grieved, as we'll see at the end of this chapter later in a few weeks. But we are sealed in the Spirit. We have a pledge of our inheritance from the Holy Spirit. And so there's one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But next he says, one hope of your calling. Again, this is the divine call. It's the same word as up in verse 1. The same hope of being predestined and adopted and chosen of God and redeemed. One calling, and that should unify us together. We share in this hope. We have so much in common. The common bond of Jesus Christ that it's His blood that purchased me. It's His blood that purchased you and you and you. And we seek to glorify Him. In God's wisdom, He brings other blood-bought Christians to confront and to challenge and encourage and to edify us. And that's part of the benefit of having a close-knit church family. And so if you're on the outskirts today, I beg you, come in. Join in. If not this church, some other church. Become a part of a local expression of the local church so that you can benefit from these things. In verse 5, he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Master over all. He is King Jesus. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, he says, and He put him in subjection, all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things, even the church. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of this church. He is the head of this church. And He is Lord. I don't have time to expose those who would say that I can have Him as Savior and not as Lord. No, it's a Lordship salvation. In Philippians 2, it says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One faith. We are saved by faith. We are united to Christ when we believe <clears throat> in a very supernatural way. There is one true faith, and we Christians have that same faith. Down at the Adams Avenue Street Fair, there's a lot of people that have faith. A lot of people that have faith, it's just not in most, not in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in whatever other things that they think is right, that they're passionate about. Pluralism and postmodernism prevails today with no absolutes. And if you were down there, you know that that is largely what those people believed. Look in the pastoral letters, especially First Timothy that the faith refers to a body of doctrine. It's not only the faith, we're justified by faith when we savingly embrace Jesus Christ, but it's referring to a body of doctrine and the pastoral epistles again and again. And in 1 Timothy 1.19, it says, keeping faith and a sound conscience. Keeping orthodox doctrine, it's referring to a body of doctrine. <clears throat> he says, next one, Baptism. One baptism. Jesus Christ instituted two ordinances. Do you do those in your mountaintop retreat as you and the Lord just live on by yourself? No. It's in the context of the church. Think of those ordinances. When one is baptized, we saw many pictures of baptisms last night at the uh, celebration of the 20th at GBC Escondido. Think of what happens when one is baptized. They're baptized into the church. They become a part of, a, of the family upon profession of faith. But also the Lord's Supper. That also unites us together, doesn't it? We're coming together recognizing we're all sinners saved by grace, trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called communion. And you can say, well, I have my own communion and cup and bread between me and the Lord. No, it's meant to be their they're ordinances of the church. And so Paul is choosing these things very purposely. <clears throat> what is baptism? Well, whether it's spiritual baptism when we come to faith in Christ, or water baptism, there's some debate there. I think it could refer to both. But water baptism simply is an outward symbol of what? An inward reality. When you are changed, when you are transformed, when you're regenerated, you proclaim that to the world by being baptized by immersion. It's a picture of the old man dying and the new man coming up out of the water. And by the way, this refutes this passage right here the Church of Christ doctrine that you better be baptized every time you backslide a little bit, every time you sin, and you're rebaptized and rebaptized and rebaptized. It says one baptism. There's one baptism. <clears throat> the pattern in the book of Acts is that you hear the word of God proclaimed. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're convicted of your sin. You repent of your sin. You believe and you embrace Christ. And then you are baptized upon profession of faith and then added to the church. That's the New Testament pattern. And what you see today is that there's magical prayers. They wouldn't call them magical. Altar calls, filling out of cards. And when people do this, they say, never question your salvation. You're a Christian forever no matter how you live. That's wrong. That's wrong. And then finally in verse 6, one God and Father who is over all. Paul ends with the first person of the Trinity in the book of Ephesians. It has been set forth as the Father, as the one paternity. And again and again, it's Father, Father. He's Father of us all. Even at the beginning of the prayer in 315, every family in heaven and on earth derives its name before the Father. He is creator of all. He's behind the recreation of every child of God. What do I mean by that? When we, are, when we believe and we are sanctified and we are transformed. Father of all, over all, and through all. Well, we've seen briefly the urgent call to unity, personal characteristics of unity, and the doctrinal basis of unity. We can't forget that. Now in conclusion, just two simple points of application you must endeavor to maintain unity in the church. If there's anything you take away from this, if you are a Christian and you're a member of a church, you must endeavor to maintain unity in the church. And not only in this church, but among our relations with sister churches as well. That's important too. I don't have time to go into that. Do you really think that this is important? Paul certainly does. He's taken a a good amount of section of this letter to emphasize this. And despite our own sin and despite Satan, who is the enemy of our very souls, we are called to reflect this unity to others in the form of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another It's not enough to do it here when you come to church, when you're at Sunday school, and when you're at Bible studies. It must go beyond church, into the home, into the workplace, into the various spheres of your life. You must walk in humility and gentleness and bear and forbear, not only here in the church, but in the home and in the world. So many churches have been blown apart. So many churches have been divided and split up over petty things. And we need to have warning signs. If you have cold hearts and there's a lack of zeal for following the Lord, those are warning signs. Unholy lives, unchecked lives, neglecting reading the Scriptures, neglecting praying. You're cultivating a a carnal mentality and that's the very seeds that will blow churches apart because disunity is not far away. One of the reasons why we practice church discipline, when someone goes astray like that, that far, that we lovingly admonish them and lovingly point them to bring them back in. One of the Puritans said, Pride is the sinner's torment, but humility is the saint's ornament. Are you wearing the saint's ornament of humility today? The Holy Spirit can change us. We all fail in these high callings that Paul is setting forth here, but with the Holy Spirit, with accountability, with faithful um, engaging and serving the Lord, there is hope and we can change and grow in more um, Christ-like conformity as we focus on him. And then lastly, doctrine is important. We try to encapsulate doctrine in Sunday school and in the various teaching opportunities and, and even in the... The preaching. Over the last several months, there's been teaching on the second coming of Christ, election, the doctrine of justification, the priestly work of Christ, the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of ecclesiology and attributes, the person of God and predestination, just to name a few. But these things are important. And see, there's so many out there that say, we don't need doctrine. Just give us love. Just give us the milk. Just give me the baby bottle so I can have that. No, we need to have a doctrinal foundation so that we will not be easily swayed to and fro. That's further down in chapter 4, like the waves tossing. And so, its doctrine is important. Lastly, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've got nothing to offer to the unity of the church. You need to be first unified with the Lord Jesus Christ. The One who has died for unworthy sinners The one who spilled His blood on the cross for wretched sinners. The one that endured all hostility. You need to trust Him. Admit that you're a sinner. All has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This glorious promise in Romans 10 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Remember one Lord from our text. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart A person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. You must come to the Lord Jesus Christ with nothing in your hand, throwing yourself on His mercy, begging Him to save you. You will have exceeding joy to know that every one of your sins are paid for. Not just the past, but the future as well. And that's great encouragement. And that's not... Motive for licentious living, that's motive for righteous living because he's paid for all of your sins. And if you resist his gracious invitation to come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, that is an indication of a proud spirit. That is an indication that pride is residing within you and you need to repent of that. Plumer said last century, pride will make hell insufferable. Throw off your pride. Bend your knee before the Lord Jesus and confess your sins and be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the inspiration of the scriptures and we thank you so much for this portion of scripture before us here and the great emphasis that the apostle gives to our unity. Lord, I pray that we would hear the urgent call for unity. Pray that we would personally seek to cultivate these graces in our life that we might be assisted to maintain unity. And Lord, may it never be that we want to cast off doctrine. Lord, and may we realize that we need this doctrinal basis for our unity as well. Lord, we thank you for this time and your word. We pray your blessing on the rest of our service. In Jesus' name, amen.